I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to The Economist Asks. I'm your host, Anne McElvoy. This week we're asking, is liberalism self-destructing? Last week we interviewed Michael Wolff. He gave us an impression of an American president looking for easy wins and some instant gratifications. Well, the debate about what Donald Trump stands for continues about his politics, impact on society and culture. But what about the philosophical perspective? Liberals on either side of the Atlantic have objected to the presidency that they often deem autocratic. But is the rise of Trump and other populist leaderships in Europe a sign that liberalism is fraying or perhaps less able to deal with the strains of the modern world than its adherents would like to think? A new book entitled Why Liberalism Failed explores tensions going back to its origins in the 17th and 18th century with John Locke and Thomas Hobbes as its master philosophers. It's written by Patrick Deneen, Associate Professor of Political Science at the University of Notre Dame, Indiana. Patrick, welcome to The Economist Asks. Liberalism's probably more discussed and defended than at any time since the Cold War. So, Patrick, what makes you think that it's under real threat? Liberalism is uh, a political philosophy and now a political practice that has at its root a belief in the Uh, supremacy of individual autonomy. Uh, It posits uh, this ideal in very early mentions in Hobbes and in Locke of the idea of human beings in a state of nature as radically free and radically independent. But of course, this kind of human being doesn't exist in nature. Uh, It requires extensive architecture created uh, over many decades and many centuries through the state and through the market and through the state and the market together in order to realize this kind of entity. And so what seems to me is that liberalism's crisis is in many ways the result of its very success. People who in some ways are increasingly freed and liberated from each other, but as a result, we see a breakdown in social solidarity and the inability of our political system to generate solidarity that any society needs. Let's talk about Donald Trump, uh, an obvious challenge to a particular view of liberalism. And it's interesting, isn't it, that whatever we argue about in liberalism, most people can sort of agree that Donald Trump isn't one. Uh, Why do you think Donald Trump reflects a part of your thesis that liberalism has failed as opposed to he was the right guy at the right time with a particular understanding of how to motivate a certain group of of voters? What makes him court your argument if he is? Well, I see Trump and perhaps Brexit for all the differences as symptomatic uh, of, of, of kind of a crisis within the liberal order, uh, that the very, in some ways, the achievement of some of the main ambitions of the liberal order, a borderless world, uh, a world that flattens cultural traditions and cultural norms, uh, that the way in which we can say this has benefited especially uh, an elite class uh, in our society uh, has proven to be very difficult to navigate for those who are not in that uh, particular class. 
Uh, and so it seems to me that, for example, the election of Trump is more a symptom, a, a kind of plaintive cry of an uh, inability of people to understand and to navigate the condition in which they find themselves. And yet for liberalism to have failed as opposed to be under stress, something else has to succeed. You have said it in the book and, and elsewhere that you feel that populism doesn't have a leadership. It doesn't have elites. I mean, there's an internal tension in to what a populist elite would look like. So what wins if liberalism loses? Well, that's, that's a very good question. And uh, I don't have a ready-made answer in part because I want to resist uh, the what seems to me a kind of deeply liberal uh, question of what's the solution that can be imposed on this uh, uh, in the midst of this condition. Um, it seems to me that uh, among other things, uh, we need to be attentive to the cultivation of and recognition of the legitimacy of cultural norms and cultural conditions and practices uh, that have made living life, especially for those who are least advantaged in our society, uh, more easily navigable uh, than it, they currently seem to be. So it's less for me, um, I think it's less of figuring out the political answer to the question than thinking increasingly in cultural and social terms. What about other signs of what some people call populism and some people just think he's popular? I mean, if we take someone like Kim Kardashian with nearly 60 million Twitter followers, you could argue there is a huge engagement of a type that shows that, that there is an appetite for whatever it is that Kim Kardashian offers. But is that essentially something that's wrong with a liberal society or is that just people opting for a certain form of engagement, entertainment and distraction. Yeah, I, I think it's interesting how um, what we call culture, I come to describe as a kind of anti-culture, a kind of flattened, homogenized, standardized, uh, increasingly globalized form of pre-made, prefabricated commercial uh, forms of identification and identity that are often, as you point out, titillating and distracting. And rather than, we could say, sort of shaping and forming the characters of people in preparation for civic, shared civic lives, it seems to um, appeal to kind of deeply private, often erotic aspects of our identities that don't create the kinds of connections um, that a kind of deeper bottom-up culture would seem to have, have a possibility of achieving. Great. So if Kim Kardashian is the titillating, homogenized side of that. What I'm worried about, I suppose, is I can see all of this as a, a, a kind of creed occur against a, a lot of things that feel very flattened, perhaps a bit trashy, and perhaps have a strong commercial interest behind them as well. What's the alternative? Is it folk dancing? It's, I wouldn't mind more folk dancing. I wouldn't mind... Um, uh, there are fascinating articles uh, and studies of the ways in which things like the creation of local musical forms um, out of households and out of communities have declined. Uh, this is not to say that this is some kind of broad, general um, answer, antidote to our age, but I'm quite drawn to the analysis, of course, of Alexis de Tocqueville, who worries about a society in which our, our tendency toward individualism makes it more and more difficult for us uh, to make kind of civic and social connections with each other, and that in that context, the state will stand in for those relationships. So there's been a long concern with how do we cultivate and foster a, um, a healthy form of civil society, but it seems to me that civil society can't succeed in a world in which at the very basic level of human connection, 
uh, we don't foster those kinds of practices. Um, now, how one does that uh, is uh, above my pay grade, uh, but it seems to me that we, we wish to uh, focus especially on the, the high-level political questions uh, at the neglect of some very simple but nevertheless profoundly um, necessary aspects of, of our human uh, relationality. And your citing of uh, de Tocqueville there reminds me that your book in some sense could have been called Why Conservatism Failed because some of the same charges, if you like, or inadequacies perceived could be thrown at small-c conservatism. If it's not capable of keeping together the little platoons of Burke's reference, if it's not capable of keeping people interested in these ties that bind that are not dependent on the state, then would it be fair to say that you see a failure on the other side of the political scale pan as well? Yes, very much so. And of course, when I say liberalism, I don't mean the narrow definition of liberalism in the American political context, the left. I'm really speaking of a system in which our form of political left and right really are just different iterations of liberal political philosophy. Uh, it happens to be the case that in the United States, and I think as well in Britain, that what we consider to be conservative is really um, what I would describe as more, more or less libertarian in orientation, particularly in regards to uh, relentless defense of free markets uh, and a kind of unawareness of the way that a kind of globalized market system also creates this tendency towards standardization, homogeneity, and fragmentation of, uh, of lives uh, in, in sort of more local familial settings. So what then becomes of that great balance between conservatism and liberalism, which in different ways and at different times has guided both American and British and some European systems? Do you think that now breaks down and effectively you have populism and anti-populism replacing it, but that that is in somehow not rooted in the classic beliefs of the left and right? I suppose that part of the ambition of my book is to suggest that what we think of as the balance of the left and the right has actually not been a balance at all, but it's been a fairly singular unified agenda uh, to advance this broadly liberal project. And in some ways, the political divisions to which we pay so much attention to tend to distract us uh, from this deeper unity and unifying uh, ambition. So I guess one aspect of the book is to warn that if we don't wish to see a future of authoritarian, some form of authoritarian populism, that at the very least we need to think about ways of moderating this unified tendency. And this may require those who advance liberalism to be willing to roll back some of the aspects of liberalism to which they are most deeply committed. So what aspects of liberalism should we roll back? Well, it would seem to me that um, on the it would seem to me on the political right, uh, it would demand some reflection on the way that market systems and the contemporary forms of globalization have damaged the things that they value most, um, the small platoons, family values, uh, appealing back to Ronald Reagan in the 1980s. And on the left, um, to think of the ways in which the expansion of the state uh, has diminished um, democracy, has diminished participatory democracy, things uh, that the left has claimed to be quite committed to, and that um, uh, that statism itself is, uh, it seems to me, a force of undermining uh, responsible forms of democratic participation. And the family values that you mentioned, and, and still, still there as a, a, a political force, but it's interesting, isn't it, that the idea of a resurgent religious right in America 
didn't come to that much electorally, whereas the advance of a pro-business populist who doesn't really preach family values ended up with Donald Trump in the White House. Uh, I can't uh, I can't agree more with the uh, the sort of paradox of that fact. Um, I think in the American context, uh, the religious right, uh, particularly after eight years of Obama, took a profoundly defensive position, thinking that at the very least uh, Donald Trump's administration won't uh, increasingly go after religious believers. Um, but I think, uh, and I'm not alone in thinking, uh, that this alliance is, end, is going to end up to being profoundly damaging uh, to Christian believers over the long term, politically, as well as morally. Because? Well, to sure, well, to tie your wagon to a man of deep, deeply personal corruption, the very opposite values that you've been advancing for so many years, uh, of course, is uh, the very definition of the kind of hypocrisy that Christ uh, often called out uh, among the elite of his society. You say that liberalism is the first of the modern world's three great competitor political ideologies. With the demise of fascism and communism, it's the only one, you say, which still has a claim to viability. When is it really right to put liberalism alongside fascism and communism in that way? And I suppose even if you did, you could say, well, it's been around for practically 300 years now, isn't it? So something must have gone right along the way. Absolutely. Uh, I don't mean to suggest that it's uh, comparable in its uh, uh, obvious horribleness uh, as uh, communism and fascism, and that's not the suggestion I want to make. Rather, as I, what I try to suggest is that liberalism, like the other ideologies, proposes a vision of human nature and human society that requires a kind of reshaping of the world in its own image. And that's what I mean by ideology. It's an idea that in some ways demands ultimate um, allegiance of the political and social system to its idea of, of, of human nature and how society should look. Uh, liberalism doesn't enforce this uh, generally through authoritarian statist means, although occasionally it will be willing to do so uh, with a softer hand, uh, it generally does through a, through a kind of enticement and um, a kind of soft hegemony or a soft encouragement, uh, the reshaping of world, especially through markets and the emphasis and efforts of the state. I would, I would nevertheless defend the idea that it is an ideology, and to the extent that this ideology is increasingly realized, it also shows itself to be less tenable, uh, less, less sustainable uh, in as much as it represents um, something, a, a kind of deep betrayal of some deep aspect of our human nature. And if one is in the liberal elites or perceived to be in the liberal elites, that has actually happened that some people thought The Economist kind of was part of this. Um, it's a bit like the old question, when did you stop beating your wife, isn't it? What on earth would I have to do to prove that I wasn't an entitled liberal? That is perhaps the possibly specious underpinning of that attack on liberals. They don't understand. They're too distant. They're an entitled class. Well, as in some individuals, maybe, but others may be perfectly uh, aware that they have a privileged position and trying to mitigate what they see as the ills of the world around them. Are they wrong? I want to say they're not wrong, but as is so often the case uh, for human beings, we are, of course, always subject to a certain degree of self-deception. Um, and it seems to me it's a, a somewhat institutionalized self-deception. It's certainly the case that uh, in our elite institutions, uh, there's a, a great emphasis upon egalitarianism. And as a result, many of 
the denizens of these institutions believe themselves to be the greatest uh, defenders, uh, and in many ways those who advance equality in our world today. And yet, of course, they are also part of, and indeed it seems to me complicit in a system that advances deep forms of inequality, a new form of inequality, even a kind of new aristocratic order that now replaces the old aristocratic order that liberalism overthrew. And it seems to me, at the very least, a responsibility of these people in these privileged positions in these institutions to engage in a deep self-reflection, institutional and otherwise, on the ways in which they are complicit now in a a kind of society uh, that's creating a bifurcation uh, that we're, from which we're seeing a good degree of blowback, uh, and that's putting the system into crisis. Patrick Deneen, thank you very much for joining us. So what are your thoughts on liberalism, dying or just going through a bit of a rough patch? Do let us know, radio at economist.com or via Twitter at Economist Radio. And, of course, take a look at our other coverage of the subject in The Economist. In London, this is The Economist. The Economist.